Welcome to another episode of Tech Salescraft. Our mission is simple. We want to bring exclusive insights from some of the most influential people in the technology sales scene. We want this podcast to become your weekly go-to for your tech sales inspiration. And if this is the first time you're listening, please subscribe to keep up to date with the latest releases. Good afternoon and welcome to the latest episode of Tech Salescraft with me, James Hounslow. And today I am delighted to be joined by Alex Triplett from Ion Group. I wanted to bring Alex onto the show because we've been talking a lot about what people have to do from a sales perspective, from a VP, CRO perspective to build a software company to the point of either a investment or someone gets bought. And Alex, you have got a huge amount of experience of understanding how to and buying companies. And I thought it would be really good for you to shed some light on first time founders and what they should be looking to do to put themselves in the best position to be brought later on or to at least get the investment. So as a way of getting started, it'd be great if you just uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, James. Pleasure to be on. So a little bit of background, uh, started my career in New York in investment banking, went up to Boston and did private equity for four years where I focused on growth companies and financial technology, covering uh, about a thousand businesses from startups to midsize to large. And uh, met with a lot of founders and entrepreneurs in that experience. Um, One of the entrepreneurs was uh, the gentleman that founded Ion. So I joined in 2010, uh, really to run corporate development, which is the M&A activity that we do. We make some investments off the balance sheet as well. And then once one invests or acquires, you've got to integrate. Uh, So I focus on that as well. And I've been doing that for 11 years. And uh, I've got a second role, which is on the operations side, where I'm the CFO of one of our five divisions called Ion Corporates. There we sell treasury systems to corporations and central banks, large and small around the globe, and also commodity management systems to commodity intensive uh, corporations, traders, um, anybody involved really in the supply chain of the world's economy, we can provide an assistant. So you are very well placed for this conversation, and, uh, and I think the audience is going to learn a great deal. But... The first bit I want to get into, if you were talking to a, a first-time founder now who's got an idea and they're going to turn it into a business and look to grow it, what would be the key things that you'd be saying, right, if you've got an exit in mind, what should they be focusing on? The reason why I ask that is I've spoken to a lot of first-time founders, and you probably have also, in your, and tech and getting products and getting their idea to come to life seems to be the most important thing that they tend to focus on. But if they were sat there now, what couple of key things would you be getting them to, to focus in on away from the product, which is going to make them more desirable? And I'm not talking about like more valuable, but just more desirable to a VC or to an ION who, who might want to come and acquire them later on. Yeah. Yeah. So when you mentioned founders are focused on kind of their, their idea, I mean, part of what makes a startup business special or attracts us to businesses is the fact that you have somebody that is identified a market need, mm-hmm. understands that market need very well, and then understands how to build something to solve that, that problem. And I think the more focused and disciplined one is around exactly that, A, it's a more clear story for any seed investors or venture investors, um, whether the TAM is large, the total addressable market is large, or whether it's medium size, whether it's small, it really doesn't matter as much as I have clarity that I've identified a market, there is a need, I can solve this problem, and I understand how to do that. That will attract, uh, I think, better quality investment. Um, and certainly when we're looking at companies, 
if it's just software that does multiple things that doesn't really have a clear vision and a clear mission, it's not as interesting. For us, we're looking for businesses that there's clarity around they're solving this need or they're solving this need in a certain way or they've or they're solving this niche in a certain way. That clarity is attractive for an acquirer. And I think that clarity is certainly attractive for, for raising money. So I think it's the it's the principles of really understanding you know your mission and your value proposition and having you know, complete clarity over that is is the first step. That's that's interesting. If you if I speak to a lot of salespeople, what they'll say is they want to sell a product that is needed, not wanted. And would you say to a founder there now that you have to really realize that is your, are you creating something that people might want or are you creating something that they actually need to do? Is that critically important? Absolutely. Yeah. Needs, needs can be pulled. Because yeah. the customers will pull you, the market will pull you, momentum will be in your favor. You will be able to show that you have tailwinds, that there are factors uh, around a market that are going to drive adoption. A want can still work, but it's harder because it's more of a push. You've got to convince somebody, right? Discretionary, non-discretionary spend. So particularly in, in, uh, in capital markets, some things are really uh, non-discretionary. Yeah. Compliance could be a factor, you know, trade reporting, you know, electronification of certain processes. These things are just, if you don't do it, you then can't run your business. And those are good places to be. So definitely, yeah, the need is more important than the want. And you're going to be able to show in your marketing materials, when you're raising capital, or when you're trying to sell the company that, that the tailwinds are favorable um, because it's a need. And so when a company's in its infancy and it's got seed or, or pre-seed funding and the, the next real milestone is the um, Series A funding. And we'll touch on it a little bit later because I'm really interested in getting your thoughts around the huge amounts of over-evaluation, that overvaluation that's going on and, and money's going into businesses. But in the true sense of a word, Series A was when, and, and t- please, because you are the expert, correct me if I'm, if I'm explaining this wrong, but in my mind, back in the day, Series A was where a company had got a product market fit had some customers that were probably paying for it but they were now ready to scale and need money to to scale so effectively series a was allow them to hire new people pay those salaries and take it onto the um onto the next journey what should be people doing because there's there's mixed messages around selling and getting to series a without that many live clients a few people said to me you need around about two million dollars uh, annual recurring revenue before you should consider Series A, and then also, does it matter if it's founder-led sales at Series A? From an investment point of view, would you rather see not a founder selling at that point, but it's been replicated by someone else with a process that can scale? Yeah, I'll unbundle the interesting. There's a couple of questions in there. So, you know, the essence of kind of founding uh, or, or 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 funding rounds, as I see it. So, so seed is obviously I just need money to start to do something. Yeah. Right. So there's just basic uh, startup costs that, that, that one needs. A lot of times the founders might provide that um, themselves or it's just with friends and family. The series A is a number of things. One is this is this is now a professional business. This is more than an idea. This has traction. Yeah. Traction is defined really by the by the situation. So 
if it's a very small market, traction is going to be defined by having some customers. If it's a very large market, traction might be defined by having a very big pipeline and maybe a fewer number of customers. It really, it, it can depend. So I don't think there's any magic number to say you must have this amount of customers or this amount of revenue. Yeah. But certainly Series A, you've got to have traction. And in its essence, it is meant to then take the company from ideation into professionalism. Yeah. And professionalism might be a couple of hires. It might be a lot of hires. It might be, you know, go deeper and do a lot of product development to round out what's needed. It might be start more of a sales journey, again, specific to the situation. But I think where people have kind of gotten off track is because the availability of money is a lot easier than it had been before because valuations are in a in a bubble type state, they're yeah. misconstruing the meaning of Series A. Yeah. And yeah. for a, a savvy investor, I think you don't really want a founder selling any shares in a Series A because if you're a founder, you want to double and triple down on yourself. Right. right? You want to leverage a Series A as the engine to accelerate your vision because you know that the outcome of that vision or you believe the outcome of that vision will be much more valuable in the future. So for me, a, a red flag would be any founder wanting to sell any shares during a Series A. Huge, huge red flag it means that do you not believe in your idea? I think the second thing is in a Series A, if you've if the founder has already stepped back at that stage, I also would consider that a red flag because there is a time and a place to bring in a professional set of, of managers. Yeah. Um, for some companies, that only happens at a, at a much later phase, a uh, much later phase. Could be when a proper private equity firm invests, uh, it could be when you're part of a larger division, it could be significantly scaled revenue. If you're in a Series A state and you only have a handful of customers and you feel the need to step back and bring in a proper CEO, again, I would question the ability for you know, that idea to become a reality um, because you know, the beauty of a, of a startup company is the founder's got a vision, they have a belief, they've identified this need and they want to push for that. Yeah. Bringing in professionals to help you on streamlining operations, selling excellence, yeah. um, you know, doing, doing the things that are required from a, you know, a development point of view, absolutely. But bringing someone in at an early stage to run your company, yeah. uh, I think would also be you know, a bit of a red flag for me. So there's two points I'd really like to, to pick up on that. In layman terms then, you believe it's possible for somebody to take investment at Series A and not give up any of their their shares, how does that, that work that a VC is going to put in upwards of $5 million and not get any share options in, in the, because I think a lot of yeah, are- So let me, let me clarify, this is a good, a good uh, question. What I meant by that is basically you can get, uh, you know, uh, sell shares primary or sell shares secondary. Yeah. So secondary is I have a hundred shares and the share count remains a hundred, but I sell you 20 of them. Yeah. Right. So in that scenario, my my uh, my example is I wouldn't want a founder selling any of their shares in a Series A. I'd want them to keep all their shares. And typically, then what happens in a Series A is it's primary capital. So I've got a hundred shares. The yeah. VC comes in, and they invest and they own twenty five shares. But now I have one hundred and twenty five shares. So they put money on the balance sheet. They get shares for that. You know now they own twenty percent of the company because they own twenty five out of one twenty five. But yeah. I kept my one hundred. So that's what I mean by that. So I would always want to see a Series A to be a primary investment. Obviously, the founder will give up a little bit of the, of the ownership percentage, 
but they won't literally sell any of their shares. That would be my concern. If a founder was ever to want to sell shares that early, irrespective of kind of family and wealth planning and things like that, if you've made this journey and it's probably early enough in that journey to start a company, yeah. you know, you've, you've taken on some risk. Really, we, we would want to see somebody that wants to keep that train moving um, for as long as they can. Just to give people some advice and guidance, how many uh, of those shares should a founder be looking to hold on to to keep himself through Series A and, and, and on to the next round? What would you advise? As much as possible. Yeah. As much as possible. This is the thing that people do so often, and I see this in almost every company that, that we've ever looked at at this stage. And we look at a lot of companies at this stage because we're interested yeah. to make investments. The amount of capital table complexity for a small company is amazing. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. So if you think about your seed round, you get some friends and family. You could get a couple. You could get no one. You could just fund it yourself. You could get a couple, you could get 30, right? The more people you have that own shares, the more complicated things are yeah. because you have to manage a lot of different people and they have different agendas. Some people uh, have a different uh, time horizon and when they want their money back. Some people have different return hurdles. Some people want to be more or less involved. So that's just on the seed round. And when you talk about a series A, if you get one firm in, okay, if you get multiple firms in, now you have more uh, investors that want to be on the board. You have, again, more people that have different constraints. Somebody's funds doing well, somebody's funds not doing well. Some people want to push for getting an exit earlier because that's the way that they operate. Some people want to stay in longer and you start to build complication. And then when you get professional investors like venture capital, they want different types of security. So yeah. typically you form a company that's got ordinary shares or common shares. Yeah. Venture capital, they might want preferred shares. And then they say, why don't you do an option plan for employees? And then all of a sudden you have different share classes. They all have different rights. They all have different documentation. With lots of people on the cap table. And you step back and you go, wait a minute. I'm a business with 30 people. Mm -hmm. I've got 10 customers. And yet I have 25 shareholders. This makes no sense. Yeah. Because think about what matters in running a business is I need to build product and sell product, build product and sell product. I don't need to mess around with my cap table. That's a, that's a later stage thing. So. I would encourage any founder to try to minimize cap table complexity as much as possible. Take the fewest amount of dollars that you need to do what you need to do. Yep. Dilute yourself as little as possible. Keep as much of the shares as you possibly can. It is your company. Yep. You are driving the idea. You are creating the value. Capital is fungible. So really what you want with it is not the dollars or the pounds or the euros, you want an intelligent, supportive investor yeah. on the other side. You want help. You want a sounding board. You want somebody who's seen it before. That is worth a lot more than the money. And that's worth a lot more than the valuation because at the small stage, what matters more is somebody that can help you and say, here's how you grow to 100x. Because yeah. I've seen it before and I can help you. I've made mistakes and I can give you my advice. And those things are really valuable. Yeah. And not every, not every investment firm can give you that because a lot of them have never run a company. A lot of them yeah. never started a company. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that I think founders really should consider when taking money because it's not all the same. But I think minimize the cap table complexity is just rule number one. So take money from the fewest amount of people. Try to keep everybody in the same class of shares. Yeah. Keep as many of the shares for yourself. From your experience, 
from the US to, to, to Europe, particularly if you look at San Francisco, you have the average startup starting with about $9 million seed and pre-seed funding. And in Europe, you're talking about a few hundred thousand. And what seemed to have happened in, in Europe over recent time is that founders have had to, you know, salaries have gone up, um, but their investment levels kind of haven't and be able to entice somebody to come and work for the startup. It's like, we, we can't pay you anything, so we're going to give you equity instead. And that's how it gets diluted down. Do you see a similar thing in, in um, North America where they're taking such huge investments early on, but obviously people are saying, well, if I'm giving you several million dollars for effectively an idea, I'm going to take a large part of the, the business. Like two different problems, but basically still founders giving away shares. Or do you see people in North America being able to hold on to the shares for longer because they've got more money to spend on people? If you're going to get that amount of investment that early, you have to give up something. And yeah. so, yeah, in North America, we do we do see that, that, that people tend to give up more than they probably ought to, especially, I consider that overfunding the business. It really depends on the business model, but it's not about if you can get the money, great, go get it. Yes, it might feel good to have that amount of cash in the balance sheet, but then, you know, if, if somebody pro provides you that amount of cash, they're going to expect immediate results. So it depends on how much risk and pressure you want to take. There's obviously a risk in starting a business, but when you get a lot of cash, you're going to give up more shares. Yeah. And you are working for the shareholders and they're not all you anymore. So you're not working for yourself. You're working for a firm who has a mandate to get a return quickly. Yeah. And they are going to demand things. And yeah. what they demand may or may not align to your vision. And the way that they want to ramp the company may or may not have aligned to either your experience or what you had intended to do. And um, it might work or it might not work. But I, I think, you know, share capital is incredibly valuable. It's very precious. I think giving it away just because somebody offers you a lot of money for it isn't always the best thing because particularly when you're small, the shares aren't worth that much. Yeah, yeah. They're worth a lot more when you're bigger. And if yeah. you give them away when you're small, you can hard to get them back. Is there, they, you know, so. Do you, do you think VCs will use it as a tactic though to try and get it? Because VCs obviously want it, don't they? Because it's more valuable to them to get as much as they can. And if founders are strong enough to say no, are they still likely to get the investment that they need? Absolutely. If you have a good idea, people will invest. Yeah. And there are thousands of VCs and there are plenty of high net worth individuals who are almost even better than VCs because they were once you 30 yeah. years ago or 20 years ago. Yeah. So there is, there's plenty of capital that's available. And for a pick a startup tech company, a billion dollar market, market size, TAM, uh, so to speak, pipeline of a hundred customers, do you need, you know, you need to hire 10 people? Yeah. Why take 40 million when five will do? Yeah. yeah. Right. So, I mean, there, there's, there, there's a lot of arguments over. So, so pr prudent amount of capital, because you can always, if you get a good investor and things are going well, they'll put more money in. Yeah. Right. And if, they, if things are going well and you only took a small amount of money and you go back to that investor a year later and they, they're on your board, they see the results, they know how things are going. They'll want to invest more money and put more money to work. The valuation will be higher at that point. Yeah. So then you have to sell less. Yeah. So why give it up now? Right. So yeah, I, I think that the money's money's very available. Um, it's available from a lot of different sources. It's not easy, right? You can't just go out there and and and, and raise capital for any any given idea. But if you have a good idea, people will back you. Yeah. And so my my advice is take the 
take the amount that is pragmatic, that makes the most sense to do what you need to do in that phase, whatever that next phase is, 12 to 18 months, whatever it is, but don't overfund your business. Yeah. And, you know, keep the, keep the share capital tight and, and uh, you know, don't introduce complexity in your cap. They won't keep as many of your shares as you can. I want to touch on part of the conversation we had last week at when you're coming in to value a company, there's three key things that you look at because the more conversations I've been having with founders is that everything's been about revenue and getting revenue up. And that's been the most important thing. And it's like, profitability seems to be so far down the list of importance because they see the investment from uh, where whatever sources come through it's not their money we're going to spend it the company's going to be valued based on the revenue so let's just get the product out there and uh, and sell it and I'm so scared and I don't even own a, a vendor in it but I'm so scared with the amount of money that's being invested and the scale that needs to go on to do it and no one's really thinking about profit it's it's revenue talk us through like the, the things that you're looking at and and whether people should be more uh, inclined to think about profit as well i know it goes hand in hand but should there be more of an eye on profit than maybe is going on at the moment short answer yes again depending on the phase or stage of company it's either about having a path to profitability yeah or, or being profitable if you're in a you're in a later phase the, these are important and they're important for two reasons. One is when you're going to ultimately exit the business, whether you want to go public, whether you want to sell to someone like ourselves, we do care about revenue. We care about recurring revenue and we care about if you're profitable or you have a path to profitability, a believable, easy path to profitability that doesn't disrupt what makes your company you know, good and valuable. Um, because if you cannot make dollars, as the old line goes, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Yeah. That's what businesses are there for to do, right? They're not there to burn money. They're there to make money. I wouldn't over-index becoming profitable day one, although there are many businesses. Ours was like that. We were profitable from the start because that mattered to our founder. And we were able to, to scale a lot quicker than many of our peers because we generate cash. Yeah. And because we generate cash, we can go do things with that money. And so Ion's ability to become as big as it has, 12,000 employees and, and billions in revenue, it's because we started profitable. Yeah. And a lot of the peers that started the same time we did, they either don't exist or we bought them or they never got as big. So the businesses are there to ultimately make profits. Now, I'll, I'll kind of give you two, uh, you know, two quick examples. So one is from a valuation point of view, the intrinsic value of a company is really its future cash flows. Yeah. And if you don't make money today and you have no plans to make money in the future, then how can I even buy the business yeah. because I'm just going to spend more and more money to support what you're doing and I'll never make it back. And, and second point is we've seen this movie before. It was called 1999-2000 Tech Bubble. Yeah. We know what happened, right? We know what happened when euphoria around the internet started. And it was first time for everything and everything got overfunded. Go back and see how many of those businesses still exist. Yeah. Very few. And the ones that exist, Google, yeah. Those businesses, they were incredibly profitable from the beginning. That's why they exist. Yeah. So um, there's a cautionary tale to just driving for re revenue, for revenue's sake, cutting corners just to, to generate more and more revenue because eventually the music does stop. Yeah. And when the music stops, you know, people that have cash in the balance sheet, that have very safe businesses, that have good, loyal customers, that have happy customers, 
that have happy employees, they can survive. Yeah. But if your business is based on just growing revenue for revenue's sake and enjoying this euphoria, euphoria doesn't happen for 30 or 40 years straight. Like right? the yeah. world happens in cycles it has for 200 years. And we, we have a great archetype, which is 1999, 2000. So, you know, people should just be aware of that. When you're on the path to, to profit, at what point would you say in the stage of a company should you stop being on? Because it's very easy to say we're on the path, we're on the path. But when would you expect a company to say, right, you should be off the path and you should be in profitability? There is no model because every business has, you know, you have a different in market, it's larger or smaller. Are you selling uh, workflow software? Are you selling, you know, data? Are you targeting enterprise? Are you targeting small to medium businesses? It is a lot of different uh, creations of a company, but I, I would say, and we've invested in a couple of companies of this size. My, my advice is always, look, for a general kind of workflow software company, I would think that when you're getting through series B, you're, you're three or four years old, you have three, four, five million of revenue. You should be profitable. Yeah. You should be profitable. There's no reason why you shouldn't be profitable. Yeah. And unless you can prove to me that continuing to be unprofitable means you know you can grow several hundred percent legitimately several hundred percent then you know i would rather grow 50 or 100 percent and be profitable because it's important to prove that out now that's most companies there are a certain small subset of companies where you know they have to sacrifice profitability for a long period of time because the cam is so big typically b2c companies there are very few of them that are approaching a market and you have to you have to kind of be in the j part of the j curve for longer before you go to profitability but i don't think you can you can take you know the kind of you know deck of corn and say just because these folks did it and they plowed 100 million and something and they want to be unprofitable for five years there's not every market is that large not every idea is is is, is like that so i think for your standard enterprise software kind of workflow software company and getting profitability two, three, four years in, you know, because it's, it's a recurring revenue business. Yeah. And so you should be, you know, you should be margin accretive. I've had a, a few second time founders uh, on the show. And interestingly, they are more interested in profit the second time. And yep. um, there's a couple of reasons why they, they say that. I'd be interested to see what your thoughts are on that. So first of all, they don't need as much funding because we can reinvest ourselves. And I said, that's critical, which means I don't need to go out to a, to a VC till later on. They also mentioned there that it's too easy to sink their own money that they've already made to, to patch up stuff. So it's like, we get profitable, we get going. But they also talk about the value that they have, obviously, when they go to funding, that they are already profitable. So not only do they not need as much funding, the value is that much greater because they are profitable, not we think we can get profitable. Do you agree with that sentiment? Do you think that that is, that is, if you can get to that mentality, that's why these guys who've been there and done it before doing it again, that's why they're doing that. And that's really what people should be thinking. Spot on. Yeah. And, and hence you're saying second or third time founders. So yeah. they're kind of saying exactly what I'm saying, which is I don't want to overfund at the beginning. My shares are precious. I don't want to give that away. Yeah. And so I want to have less funding. And the way to get less funding is... I can generate cash myself. And you're absolutely right. If, if someone can put on a PowerPoint slide, they can become profitable. Any of us can do that. Yeah. It's hard to actually show the bank statement that shows you've got the cash there yeah. um, that's being generated from business operations. So I absolutely agree. And they're spot on to my, my first comment, which is 
your shares are precious. Don't yeah. overfund businesses. Don't give too much away. And they're right. If, if, if you can, at, a, at an earlier stage, show we're already profitable, there's much more value in that business because then everybody knows you can generate cash. And, and you can always, it's interesting because if you become profitable earlier, that actually shows more conviction of if we wanted to pull the lever and grow a little faster and be unprofitable for a year, mm. but then become profitable again, it's easier to get to, to back that because yeah. I know that you can. Yeah. It's not yeah. theoretical. It's interesting. Going back to the, the large amount of money that's been invested at Series A right now and, and, and also kind of what I would, would have classed as quite early Series B funding. So there seems to be people that go from, from Series A to Series B within sort of like 18 months. It's been a little bit shorter this time. And in some instances, I'm hearing it's because the original VCs are seeing that it's going to be good and they want to come in and put more money in while the shares are going to be cheaper or the, the, the price to it is going to be cheaper than waiting as it starts to go on that flow. How should founders handle that to say, right, look, it's really exciting to see money coming in and people wanting to do that. And it's like, right, actually the holy grail, by doing that means we're, we're that much closer. But the percentage of businesses succeeding is not changing. And, and our founders, do you think, just seeing it as well, look, I don't know if we're going to make this, but if I can nick an extra couple of million now, then so be it. So if the business doesn't end up going where it is. So what would you advise to a, a founder who's got a VC breathing down the neck saying, we should go for funding now. We'll give you more money now because we can see where this is going. Say, actually, hold on, we don't need this. Let's, let's put the brakes on and just carry on on a normal trajectory. I would advise... Well, first, going back to some of my earlier comments, uh, shares are, are precious, so I would advise yeah. never overfunding a business. But I think if you've got a particular VC that's that's strongly advising you, they want to put more money to work, you should do a bigger funding round now, I would canvas the market and get more than, than, than one, because if they're interested, others will be. You can then play competitive attention. And, you know, you are in control. So if, if, you know, you own the business, you're in the majority of the business, you're in control. And if somebody wants to give you 10 million and you only want five, you can just go back and say, five is all I'm going to do. Yeah. And, and if you get other VCs involved, if that one says, well, we're going to walk away, that's fine. Yeah. I'll just go over to, to these other folks. But I think the, the bigger thing is I would actually go back and, and, and test them. Like uh, just because a VC has money, there's a process for you to raise and you want to pitch. But if, if you're getting Series A, if you're getting that amount of traction, if they're that excited, you surely can get other venture capital firms excited. Uh, excited. And then it becomes the reverse. You're auditioning them. Yeah. This is a relationship, yeah. right? You, you, need to, you need to want to get into a relationship with the counterparty. Yeah. So it's not just the money. Is the firm going to help you? Yeah. Are the people, the type of people that you think can make an impact on your board? Because frankly, that's more valuable than a couple extra million. It's yeah. not going to go in your pocket. It's going on the company balance sheet. And that couple extra million, it needs to then get spent. Yeah. So, you know, we can, anybody can go spend money. That's not a hard thing. Spending money in the right way, thinking about the right strategy, thinking about avoiding pitfalls, thinking about how to position correctly. Those are difficult. And yeah. so you really want to look at the counterparty who's offering you this and say, well, number one, why do you think I need more money? Yeah. So why don't you give me your analysis to tell me, to prove to me why I need more money? Because I don't think I do, number one. Number two, go find other uh, venture firms or high net worth individuals so you have some competitive tension. And then number three, really judge the investor by who they are, not the money that they're bringing. Because you want people involved in your idea, in your startup company, 
they can really add value. That's, that's I think, more critical necessarily than maxing the last dollar. Is let's get the right people involved. I know I've uh, kept you for a while. Before I let you go, I'd love to get your opinion on why would somebody or why should a founder look at someone like Ion as a place to sell the business, either probably at that stage going to a private equity company and take some investment? What, what's, the, what's the plus points of allowing someone like Ion to um, acquire you? Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you two reasons. And one is why could I uninvest or why should I invest versus a venture firm or a private equity firm? And then why should I acquire on the investment front? We have 30,000 customers. Yeah. Startup companies need distribution. So when a venture firm comes to you and says, we can open doors to customers, maybe <laughs> I've seen it work. I've seen it not work. Yeah. When Ion yeah. comes to you and says, we literally have 30,000 customers buying goods and services from us today and we can keep your business and we can cross sell you against our customer base that's real and that's special and that's important and so we do a lot of investing and that's really one of the key value propositions is distribution is hard getting customers early is what maximizes valuations we can literally help with that right integrate your solution into our solutions uh, cross sell your solution you truly add value there. The number two thing is we're operators ourselves. We're running a company day to day. So for us, this exercise isn't theoretical, yeah. right? We're hiring people, we're letting staff go, we're building product, we're servicing customer requests, we're going to market. We're doing all the things that you need to do, just albeit at a larger scale. So our ability to help advise and add you know, value where we can, having seen different types of movies before, is a little bit more unique than maybe somebody who just does investing for a living. They've got good pattern recognition, they may have been a previous founder, which is special, but have they really been in your shoes? Are they in your shoes today? On the acquisition front, it's similar. So just closed a couple of recent tuck-in acquisitions where you know they wanted exactly what I'm talking about, which is they founded a business, they'd scaled it to a point. They said, we really need to join up with somebody bigger. I have this great product. We've got great customers. I'm just really lacking the ability to get global. I'm lacking tight integration with some of your products that can really accelerate me. And, and the customers are asking me you know, for these types of things, or I'm really lacking distribution, or you know, quite frankly, as a founder, I do 15 things in my business. What I really love to do is I love to focus on product development. So where's the product direction going? And I love to engage customers. Yeah. I don't like to file taxes or deal with my audit or deal with real estate. Yeah. When you're acquired by Ion, we'll do that stuff for you. Yeah. Right. That yeah. stuff goes to the horizontal layer, and you can then be unlocked to focus on really kind of what got you into the founder position in the first place, which is you probably love the product, you probably love the customers, you probably love the market, and we can unlock you to, to do that. So we think we're a good home in that sense because most of the businesses we acquire are either founder-owned or private equity-owned, but they're still a founder involved, and that's exactly the, the key value prop. Is let's unlock you to do founder-driven activities, and we'll do the you know, the foundational stuff. And then my last, my last point would be there's opportunities at scale. So, you know, at, at our scale now, we can um, have a business come in. And for those employees at that business, let's say we acquire a business and there's 50 people, let's say it's 5 million in revenue. Yeah. And for their career within that 50 person, 5 million revenue business, they've got maybe some options or something, but the ability to do different things in their career is a little bit limited. You come and die and we've got five divisions, we've got 12,000 people, we're in 50 different offices around the globe, all sorts of different things that one can do. So the ability for your team or yourself 
to actually say, what I really am interested to try to do is X, Y, Z. We have a lot of mobility that we, that we encourage. So, you know, those are some of the key things. It really just, it's, it's on the investment side, it's distribution, and it's, it's having been there before. And so giving you a, a, an operator's eye. And then on the purchasing, it's unlocking you to do what you love to do. It's a good home for your business. Again, it's distribution and things like that. But it's also been unlocking some opportunities for your employees to, you know, to, to level up, to scale up, to get some mobility. And how do you decide whether an organization is one that you want to invest in over one that you want to acquire? Is that based on what the founders are looking to, to do or is it a size of, of business or, or where it is in its life? Yeah, we look at things that are literally zero revenue on up to, we've acquired businesses that the, you, you know of, they're four or 500 million of, of revenue. So everything in between. The first thing is, do we understand the value proposition? So, so do, we, do we understand the end market? Is there a need? Do we understand the value proposition of what the company provides? And can we get behind that? So that's number one, because it's, it's, gotta, it's gotta matter. It's gotta, it doesn't matter if the market is huge or, or, or tiny. It's gotta be a value prop. It's gotta be solving a need. So that's number one. And we, we, we focus on product. We, we like to demo product. We wanna understand what it does. All products are, are imperfect by definition. They're always in evolution why they have roadmaps, but we just want to understand where the product is now. Is there a need? What's the value? I think the second thing then is uh, off the back of that, why would we get involved? It, it, it really comes down to, do we think that this company within our group can, can benefit? Yeah. So can we bring distribution? Can we bring uh, product innovation? Do we solve an additional need for our customers? Mm-hmm. So in some cases, you know, we get asked to acquire businesses where we literally already have that business. Yeah. more of the same. We're not as interested at that, as that, right? There's a scale element, but we're not as interested. We want to we maybe acquire, invest in things that are around what we do, yeah. adjacent to what we do. Yeah. So it's really because we can always go back to our customer base and say, see, we're filling in yeah. the, you know, the white space, right? We're filling in the patchwork quilt of solutions that provide you more value. And we think that's yeah. really special for customers. You know, so those are those are two of the things. And then um, you know, there's always a, a people element. Um, we're always looking for people that are hungry. They, they, they believe in, in their, their vision. They want to run for the next you know, five or 10 years. That's you just you can't replicate that kind of energy. That's always good to bring into into the company. So those are some of the keys. So do you guys then when you're listening to your to your clients and there's a particular problem that there's a particular business problem they have and you don't have a tech stack that solves it. Do you actively go out then and try and find a business that would solve that problem and reach out and talk to them? So is there that sort of proactivity around it as well? Yes. That's really interesting. If there's a founder uh, in the um, fintech space that would be looking for investment or acquiring, what's the best way to to get in touch with you guys to uh, have a conversation? Yeah, you can... Email myself, alex.triplet at iongroup.com. So that's that's number one. I'll typically spearhead all of our sourcing activities. And then I've got some some colleagues as well that focus on on some of our different divisions, but can come right to me. And you know, we we look at things every single day, large and small, all sorts of different uh, different industries, really focused on technology, principally financial technology. But um, yeah, Excellent. just give me an email. And uh, quickly before I let you go, what's the, the vision for ION over the next sort of two to five years? Very quickly, we think that we've built a good set of 
very interesting financial technology businesses. We think our end markets are really interesting from serving banks and broker dealers and capital markets to serving corporations and corporates to serving basically anybody that does M&A or equity or debt raising and analytics to serving banks and then uh, businesses uh, in Europe with uh, Chidakri and Chairbit. So one of the things we want to do with any of these uh, businesses is can we help our industries continue to transform? So can we provide more automation for our customers? Can we make their life easier and more seamless? And then to the extent that any of our solutions can help in other parts of the divisions, can we help with that? So for instance, if I'm a corporation and I on corporates and I want to look at my balance sheet and I want to understand what do my peers do, I could potentially use some of the data from Ion Analytics. Yeah. And that's a unique thing that we can do and no one else really has the capability to do. So we want to do more of that, right? Yeah. How can we just make customers smarter, drive better decisions, automate their businesses more, make their lives easier? It's a 20-year journey. Yeah. We have decades to go. We have a lot of lot of things to work on. Um, yeah. So it's going to be fun. Interesting. Um, Alex, thank you very much for taking your time and agreeing to share with us your knowledge and, uh, and experience. Um, I think a lot of people will take a lot from this. So thank you very much. Pleasure, James. I uh, really appreciate you having me on and uh, look forward to following up. Perfect. Take care. Bye-bye. If you like what you've heard today, please rate, review and subscribe. We want you to get involved with Tech Sales Craft and become part of our growing community. Thanks for joining us.